You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, your host, and along with our producer Alex Diaz and our production assistant Daniel Tersini, we would like to welcome you to the show this morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Alex and Daniel. Good morning, Kathy. Yeah, good morning. How are you guys? Uh, holding up, I think, you know. Weather's been a little bad. Yesterday it was fine, and then last night it started raining, and then it got even worse. So. That's okay. That's okay. What do they say? May showers? Actually, it's April showers April bring May showers. flowers. We're That's a little right. bit delayed. I've With been told that we're delayed this season, so <laughs> yeah. well, I hear the summer we'll supposed to, to be really. Hopefully, hot. we won't have to change the uh, saying. Hopefully not. And uh, we'll go back to its uh, regular April showers bring it, May flowers for it, next year yeah, at least. Let's it hope. has been a lot of rain. It really has been a lot of rain. Did you guys uh, watch the game on Saturday? I I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not a sports guy, so this is all you too. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, everything has been said about the Raptors, um, but I tell you. You I, didn't just watch it, did you? You were there. No, I, you know what? I was a six man. I was there. Yeah. I was at me and the rest of the crowd. We were the six man. It is, you know, if you're a sports fan, you, you just, after 24 years, if you've been a Raptors fan, it's, uh, it's something. It really is. I mean, we, we stayed and we walked around downtown. We were actually, you know, that bus scene where all the kids were on top of the bus. We were right there as the first one got on and watched. Yeah, you did send some pictures to me and <laughs> I was blown away by it. And there was... It was fun. Like there was, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't afraid. They were having fun. And, um, you know, uh, Toronto has, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. I was going to say Toronto has that way of, of just enjoying the moment and being safe. I remember when I was down at the Rogers Center for the bat flip game, Mm -hmm. everybody got so excited about that game. And yet, I didn't have to worry about my safety. No, it, it didn't. It really didn't dawn on me. We walked around for about an hour, and you know, we had. I've had a few people say, "You, you know how much you could have sold those tickets for," and you know, but you know, life is made up of these moments, right? And the moments lead to experiences. And I would, you can't monetize the feeling that I had. I mean, not everybody, like Daniel said, they're not into the sports. But whether it's a sports moment or whatever your moments in life are, I mean. I think that, uh, I guess your generation, my kids' generation, they have a lot and you have a lot to teach us because I find that I'm a planner and I'm a plotter and I, you know, I'm looking forward and I just find that uh, my kids' generation, you guys are sort of in the middle of them, um, you live more, you experience more and the 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 happiness I felt, you want to relate everything back to health, the happiness that I felt that night, I mean, I, I could, you just can't, you can't trade that for a dollar value. It was just so, so great to be a part of it. I really am grateful to be a part of it. And whatever your experiences are, I, you know, yeah. they're, they're so valuable to your health. They're so valuable to life. This is what life is all about is, you know, whatever is your passion. Having joy in your life is so, joy. so important to one's health. You nailed sure. it. I and mean, that's it. I was just so happy. And I was so, you know, I was just so happy. And this is, this is my thing. Uh, you know, my bio says I'm a sports mm-hmm. fan and I'm a big sports fan, a big Toronto sports fan. And really that was, that was just for me being a part of that. Um, and, and basketball in general is so fast. So it's a little different. It's way different than baseball where there are particular Right. basketball is just a constant you know uh, uh, stress and back and flow back and forth thing and it was just uh, I tell you the whole the, the whole gathering and the whole feeling of that place when it exploded and when they won it's just you can't buy those experiences you really can't so hmm. whatever your thing is you know experience yeah, experience you, you have to make sure that whatever you in, whatever you enjoy in life when that opportunity comes up Take, take advantage of that, right? You really do. There's yeah. so many things in life that bring us down that when we have uh, an opportunity to be 
excited, joyful. We really have to uh, really live in the moment. And that it is. It's you. You said it, Daniel. You should be or Alex. You should be on this side here. Mm-hmm. It's. It. I was. I can't. I find it hard to put into words how how you know. I just felt on a high, and you know, like I said, whether it's sports or whatever it is you're doing. You know, take the time, live the moments. It's. Um, I think I, you guys I, do it I, a lot I, better than we I, do. I do that with my with with uh, music in particular, and I'm sure Daniel he does that with his uh, love of uh, video games. Video games. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we all have our thing, and whatever your thing is, don't be afraid to 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 live it to the fullest. Because exactly, you don't get these chances many times in life. So, and as I said, I think you guys do it much better than our generation, who was sort of brought up to plan for the future and. When you're always thinking about planning and looking forward, you kind of miss what's going on right now. So, so well, it's don't. not a bad thing necessarily. It's got to right? be a balance. I think it has to be a yeah, balance. Yeah, of course. And that's, that's the same thing from our perspective. Our, our parents have, have taught us about the importance of planning, and yet, you know, we have to um, do what we can to think about our future too. So, yeah. as you said, Strike. it works both ways. It's a balance. It does. It does. But, uh, you know, it was a great night for me on Saturday, and I hope that uh, anybody who is a sports fan or Raptors fan uh, enjoyed it as well. Our show today is live. You can call in and talk to our guest, uh, Dr. Glenn Livingston, at 416-245-1534. And do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC. Um, please do email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you have any questions. And do subscribe to our podcast. All of our shows, uh, live or taped, are flipped over into podcast form. And they are available on all your platform uh, podcast platform sites. And you can find them on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and my website, which is kathybsa.com. We're approaching the end of May, and I was a little remiss in my first few shows uh, in May to talk about um, May being Brain Cancer Awareness Month. And I want to give you a few facts. I don't want to take too long on this because I have a a recipe that I want to give to you at the end. But um, being that it is Brain Cancer Awareness Month, the most common types of brain cancers are gliomas and meningiomas. I knew I would mess that up. Every day there's a word. This is why you're on the other side of the glass. (laughs) But every show there's a word, and that's the word. I'll say it right all the way up until I have to say it live. Gliomas are cancers that grow from the glial cells. They're supportive cells that hold the neurons in place. And meningiomas are cancers that grow from the brain coverings, the meninges. Aspartame and long-term cell phone use are being studied for their link to breast cancer risk. Um, Again, I underline cell phone use. Use your headphones. Use your speaker. Please don't put your phone towards your ear all the time. I try and tell my kids that all the time. Uh, And it is estimated that 55,000 Canadians are surviving with a brain tumor. So there are two awesome foods I want to highlight now before we get into our show that are very, very good for brain health. One is walnuts and the other are avocados. Walnuts are high in omega-3 fatty acids and polyphenols. And omega-3s exhibit neuroprotective properties that are critical for normal brain function and development through all stages of life. Polyphenolic compounds found in walnuts reduce the antioxidant and inflammatory loads on brain cells and they improve interneuronal signaling. So very, very good foods. And if you notice, the walnut is got a shape of the brain. So it's funny how some foods are shaped like the things that they impact the most, but the walnuts have a shape of a brain. Take a look at it. Avocados uh, contain monosaturated fats. This contributes to healthy blood flow, which carries over into a healthy brain. Avocados also lower blood pressure and hypertension is a major risk for decline in cognitive abilities. So two very good foods. And what I did... um, as I tried to find a recipe for the month, I tried to recreate something that I love, and that's pesto sauce. I love pesto. It's one of my favorite things. Um, so for this month, I used those two foods, and I, I put together a recipe that I would like to give to you here, combining avocado and walnuts. And if I don't forget, I will be putting it up on our um, Facebook page. Um, so walnut avocado pesto. Here you go. One avocado a quarter of a cup walnuts, one cup of packed fresh basil, two cloves of garlic. You could do one or two cloves. I like a little bit more garlicky. A half a cup of Parmesan cheese, a half a teaspoon of salt, juice of a half a lemon, and one and a half to one cup of extra virgin olive oil. 
And what you want to do is you want to pulse the avocado, avocado, walnuts, and basil in your food presser, food processor until smooth. Add the garlic and Parmesan cheese, salt, and lemon juice, and pulse again until blended. And then with the uh, food processor on constantly, slowly stream in the olive oil. Uh, it's important to do this slowly to help the emulsification so that the... Um, the pesto sauce will stay together. And as you do it, if you need to scrape down the sides, uh, go ahead and do so. And that is delightful. You can use that on sandwiches. You can use it in pastas. And uh, very, very good to support brain health with all the good fats. Okay, and we will put that on our Facebook page. As I mentioned, again, if memory serves me, I will try and do that today. So today we are talking about binge eating, and our guest is Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is a veteran psychologist and a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Dr. Livingston's work, theories, and research have been published in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Chicago Sun-Times. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binge eating and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most importantly, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. This is going to be a very, very interesting show. Uh, our learning points, uh, three of many. Why is binge eating so prevalent today? Is it hard to stop binge eating? And how do we take the first steps in doing so? And when we get back, we'll be talking with, do- talking with Dr. Livingston. Never too late. 
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Again, our show is live. You can call in at 416-245-1534. And do follow us on our social sites. We are at The Health Hub RMC on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Good morning, Dr. Livingston. How are you? Oh, I'm very good. Please call me Glenn. I will call you Glenn. Thank you. I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew who you were. So <laughs> thank you, Glenn, for that. Um, I think that it's important, uh, after reading your bio to everybody, to get a perspective on how you took on uh, food disorders and binge eating from your own personal experience. Oh, sure. Sure. And I didn't originally set out to work with uh, people that had food addictions. I I had one myself, and so I was a couple of them family therapists. But the, my story is that when I was about 17, I, I'm 6'4", I'm pretty muscular, and so I figured out that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat anything I wanted to. And you know, six, 7,000 calories a day, boxes of muffins, whole pizzas, boxes of Pop-Tarts, it, it didn't really matter, whatever I wanted to eat. And I didn't think that was a problem. I, I actually thought it was great. And I spent an awful lot of time exercising and eating and in the bathroom and um, really in retrospect, there are other things I could have been doing with my life, but I didn't think it was a problem until I was about 22, 23 years old when my metabolism started to slow down a little bit. And I was married and I was commuting two hours a day to graduate school and I had patients and reading and all these responsibilities. And I just, I couldn't spend that kind of time working out. And I was sitting most of the time, and I, I just, I couldn't stop eating anyway. I had gotten accustomed to these six or 7,000 calories a day, and I found that the foods had a life of their own. Um, simultaneously, I, you know, I, I never had children because my ex-wife traveled for business, and I never commuted. So I had an awful lot of time. I, I worked at home. My my clients are sort of home in it. And I had a lot of time to develop a second career. And the second career I developed was consulting for um, uh, big companies, you know, AT&T, Lipton, Novartis, the, those types of companies. And a lot of them were in the food industry. And I saw that they were spending billions of dollars to engineer these hyperpalatable food-like substances concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And um, that becomes a little, that becomes more important later in the story. But because I came from a family of psychologists, there are 17 therapists in my family, I figured that my problem must be that there's a hole in my heart. I figured if I could fill the hole in my heart, then I'd stop trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And I set out on a very long psychological journey to try to fill that hole, for lack of a better phrase, to, to love myself then. And I saw some of the best psychologists and psychiatrists. I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I saw nutritionists. I, it was a very long and soulful journey. And I learned an awful lot about myself. And I think it shaped the person that I am in many ways today. I think it gave me a lot of compassion and um I know heart for what people go through, but it never really solved the overeating problem. It would get get a little better and then a lot worse and a little better and a lot worse. And you know, there were some things that were helpful along the way, but it never really solved it. So fast forward um, maybe 20, 25 years, and I've had a lot of consulting time with big food. So I was very aware of how powerful these foods were. I've done a lot of consulting for big advertising, so I knew that even though people think that advertising doesn't affect them, that it actually affects them more when they think it doesn't affect them because their sales resistance goes down. I also knew a lot about the addiction treatment industry, and I had seen some of the some of the only scientific studies done or semi-quasi-experimental you know, studies done, and they were showing that the addiction treatment didn't really work, that it was be a compassionate thing to do to send people there because it was better than kicking them out on the street or you know not having anything for doctors to, to do but but the research said that it was at parity or worse than doing nothing at all 
And then I was also aware of these animal studies that showed me what was happening when, for lack of a better word, the pleasure center in our brain was hijacked. So, which is what I think is happening with all of these bags and boxes and containers and you know, food-like substances that we're being taught to eat. What, what happens when you hijack an animal's survival drive? Um, for example, I remember these studies done in the late 50s and early 60s where electrodes were put in a rat's brain in the, in the pleasure center, and they were allowed to press a lever to self-stimulate. And when they did that, the rats would press that lever thousands of times per day. That's, that's all they wanted to do. They, they would ignore their survival needs. It didn't matter if they were starving. It didn't matter if it was a pregnant nursing mother. She would abandon her pups to press the lever thousands of times a day. They'd crawl over painful electrical grids to press the lever. And I know that nobody is inserting electrodes into our brain. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. But is it a really far stretch to say that there are chemical electrodes? If you, if you can walk out of one fast food joint and see another one across the street in every city you know, in North America, how far stretch is it to say that we're, you know, we're a stone's throw away from chemical electrodes all over the place? Fair, fair and enough, and have- I, I think that that has, um, that has come up, and it is research that I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with, you know, the, the sugar addiction and so forth. But with, with binge eating, um, you know, you've got a population that's all exposed, you know, the Western diet, we're all exposed to these chemicals. Is there a cross-relationship between sort of the physiological, chemical interaction with psychological points that, that comes to a head when someone has an eating disorder like binge eating? Well, people who are struggling with mental disorders are somewhat more likely to be diagnosed with binge eating disorder. But I think, on a, I, I think that the story there has been oversold, and most people believe that emotional disturbances cause binge eating. And that, that's not really true. Emotional disturbances might cause the desire to binge eat. Because when you overload your digestive system with food that doesn't belong there, then there aren't enough resources for the nervous system to conduct the emotions. And so you get a kind of anesthetic or numbing effect. And so people start to associate comfort food with an escape from painful emotions. Mm-hmm. But the conclusion that that's all that's going on or that you have to cure those emotional problems in order to fix binge eating is, is really not true. Because first of all, the, in addition to the emotional conflict, what's actually happening is more like getting high with food. Mm-hmm. It's actually a drug. They're, mm-hmm. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't have chocolate bars and pizza and potato chips on the savanna while we were evolving. And these are supersized stimuli that we're not really prepared to deal with. And what happens is that our nervous systems downregulate their pleasure response. So over time, if you have chocolate bar after chocolate bar or you, know, you keep running to these comfort foods, then the things that nature has to offer won't taste as sweet or won't be nearly as appealing. Um, that's called downregulation. And in its extreme, people feel like they don't necessarily need the chocolate bar for pleasure. They just need it to feel normal. They can't really experience the you know, uh, pleasurable taste without it. So what do um, we classify as binge eating? Well, um, if you look in the DSM-5, they will describe a frequency of overeating past the points that you're full, where you are um, simultaneously criticizing yourself and experiencing physical discomfort and a uh, you know, degradation of emotional self, of, of self-esteem. Um, I, 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 I 
have an objection to the question in this context because, not, not to you, Kathy, but... but <laughs> no, you can object the all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's the wrong question for people to be asking. I think the question to be asking is, do I ever eat beyond my own best judgment? Not, not am I sick or am I not sick, but do I ever eat beyond my own best judgment? And what could I do about that? And if it crosses all the way to um, the DSM-5 definition for binge eating, well, that just means that maybe there was some medication that could be helpful to you. Or I, I, I think that the, the uh, application that I'm talking about here, the solution that I'm talking about here, has to do with the, um, the cognitive, the, the way you structure your thinking about what's healthy eating and what's unhealthy eating and how you're going to control that. And what I want people to understand is that no matter how strong the fire is, no matter how strong the emotion is, if you've got a good fireplace, it's okay. I mean, you can have a really strong fire in the middle of a... Um, of a living room, as long as it's a great fireplace, that becomes the center of hearth and home. It's when there are holes in the fireplace that the fire can get out and do damage. And what that corresponds to is this voice of justification. This, um, so when people make a plan, when they say, oh, just for argument's sake, I'll only ever have chocolate on the weekends again. And then Wednesday rolls around and they're sitting in Starbucks and they're thinking to themselves, you know, I worked out hard enough today. And it's not really going to make a difference. I could start tomorrow. Or, you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and that grows on a plant and therefore it's a vegetable. Um, that, that voice of justification is easier to intervene with than whatever emotion may have gave rise to the craving to start with. Well, you're, you're crossing the line to some of my thoughts because, you know, there are definitely days when I, I can justify having, you know, and I'm a nutritionist. There are days I can justify having a little bit of junk because I've done this or I've done that or I deserve it. But there's a difference between indulging and binging. And I think that that line needs to be defined. Well, I, I ask people what role, for example, with chocolate, what role would you like chocolate to play in your life? Is it something you want to eat freely or do you get yourself in trouble like that? Is it something that you want to have um, and you want to have twice a month or on the weekends or at social events? Where, where and how do you want to engage with chocolate in your life? And after you've thought that through, you kind of draw a very clear, bright line. And if you hear a voice in your head that suggests that you cross it, we define that as your... Um, you know, as, as your reptilian brain, um, you know, I, I might call it my food monster or my food demon. And this is the embarrassing product. The way that I recovered from having been 280 pounds and ridiculous triglycerides and everything, I, I would say, well, I don't want that my food demon does. It's squealing for slop and I don't, I don't need slop. <laughs> and as ridiculous as that sounds, it would, it would wake me up at the moment of impulse to uh, give me those extra microseconds to, to make a better choice. Well, I think you've and got so, to work with whatever works, right? When you're talking to your patients, you've got to get to where they're at and see what, what resonates with them. But from what I'm gathering, it's when these food monsters and these thoughts start impacting your life, that's where the problem is. I mean, uh, fleeting thoughts, you know, once in a while about I'm eating that whole bag of chips because I feel like it is a lot different than having to fight yourself all the time. So that's probably, you know, if we want to delineate, is that what I'm pulling from what you're saying? Yes. If it overtakes your thinking, if the food thoughts overtake your thinking, if it's interfering with your ability to accomplish your health and fitness goals, if it's threatening your health, um, that's the line you want to draw. Yeah. Well, there's no one that my husband exercises and he always says to us, I'm exercising so that I can eat. So he's, he's one of those that he's using, uh, using lifestyle to justify what he eats. He's, he's uh, nowhere across that line because he's not allowed to. But he, you know, he happily says that uh, working out allows him those extra few calories. So it's, uh, it, it is something that, uh, you know, being mindful of, of course. But uh, when we come back from our break, I really want to get into how we can start addressing this, what your philosophies are, and where maybe psychology is, is not meeting um, the needs of binging people and people who have food disorders. So we'll be back in a few minutes. 
Cause we all make mistakes sometimes And we all step across that line But nothing sweeter than the day we find We find It's hanging over him like the clouds of Seattle And raining on his swag, falling deeper in the saddle It's written on his face, he don't have to speak a sound Somebody call the five, oh, we got a man down Now you can go and play it like you're all rock and roll But guilt does a job on each and every man's soul And when your head hits the pillow at the nightfall You can bet your life that it's gonna be a fight, y'all Cause we all make mistakes sometimes And we've all stepped across that line Nothing sweeter than the day we find Forgiveness, forgiveness And we all stumble and we fall Bridges burn in the heat of it all Nothing sweeter than the day Sweeter than the day we call Out for forgiveness We all need, we all need We all need forgiveness We all need, we all need Mr. Lecrae, uh Mama told me what I would be in for If I kept all the anger inside of me pent up My heart been broken, my wounds been open And I don't know if I can hear I'm sorry being spoken But those forgiven much should be quicker to give it And God forgave me for it all, Jesus bled forgiveness So when the stones fly and they aim at you Just say forgive them, Father, they know not what they do Now you can go and play it like you're all rock and roll But kill does a job on each and every man's soul And when your head is the pillow at the nightfall You can bet your life that it's gonna be a fight, y'all Cause we all make mistakes sometimes And we've all stepped across that line But nothing's sweeter than the day we find Forgiveness, forgiveness And we all still and we fall Bridges burn in the heat of it all But nothing's sweeter than the day Sweeter than the day we call Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking to Dr. Glenn Livingston about binge eating. Uh, and again, you can call in and ask some questions. I have Dr. Livingston, Glenn, I have some questions that have popped in. If you wouldn't mind addressing them before we get on to um, the topic of how sure. you address binge eating. 
Um, do you see, I'll just read the questions. I always try and rephrase them. I don't know why. Is there a segment of society that binge eating is most prevalent? Age, male, female? Is there something that you have seen consistently in your practice? It's, it's more prevalent in women, women than men. Um, it's, it's in my personal practice, it tends to be people that are 40s or 50s and being threatened with some health difficulty, which is getting them to, to pay attention to it. But it actually, it starts in adolescence and early adulthood. Um, so young women in their you know, teens and 20s and just that um, it doesn't come to my attention usually until, until women are 40, 50 years old. Okay. And do you find that there are or is common food that people uh, lean towards when they're binge eating? Sugar and flour. Okay. <laughs> Sugar and flour, yeah. So the comfort yeah. foods. Yeah. Okay. Um, now let's let's get into your book and your steps. Uh, let's start off wh- with uh, the question, is it hard to end binge eating? It's much easier than people think. What, what I suggest that you do is think about your single worst trigger food or food behavior. So for me, it was chocolate. My binges always started with chocolate, and I moved on to pizza and stuff afterwards. But it's like chocolate broke the seal, and so I started to get a hold of things and making a rule about chocolate. I think my first rule was I, I'll never eat chocolate during the week again. But for other people, it's a behavior, like I will never eat standing up again, or I will always start my day with three servings of fruits and vegetables, or I'll always drink 16 ounces of spring water in the morning, or, um, you know, I, I will, I will always put my fork down between bites. For a lot of people, it's a, it's a behavior. And, um, you, you come up with your, you come up with a rule, a simple rule, and it should be something that you know is not so onerous that you won't do it, but you know that it would make a difference. So once you have that, you want to make sure that it's the kind of rule, and and I'm using never and always in a very special way here. I know those words scare people, so I'll explain that in a second. But you want to make sure that the rule is very unambiguous so that if I followed you around all day, I wouldn't know whether you did it or you didn't do it or you didn't do it. And, what the reason for that is that if you leave any wiggle room in the rule itself, then your reptilian brain, your food monster, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's going to push its way through that hole. It's going to find that hole and, and rip it wide open. So you want it to be very, very unambiguous. When I'm talking about the word never, I'm using it in the way that you might use it with a two-year-old. So when my niece was two years old, I told her she can't ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, ever. But technically, I was lying to her because in five or six years, I know that with experience and maturity, I was going to teach her how to look both ways and cross the street where her mom would. But she's too young at two years old. She doesn't have the maturity to entertain even the image of darting into the street by herself. Too dangerous. And our reptilian brains are very much like that with food. They, they don't have the maturity when, when they're activated. To, um, to, to act responsibly with food. So we present these rules to our reptilian brains as if they were set in stone. But we know that we can change them when we want to. I just recommend you do that with forethought and consideration, not let your reptilian brain do it impulsively. So that's how I recommend that people start. And once they do that, once they set out a very clear line, what tends to happen is all of a sudden there's a voice that becomes clearer in their head that is suggesting that they break it. So for example, I talked about the voice that says, well, let's start tomorrow. What you want to do with that is first recognize it. You want to recognize that there is a voice that's trying to get you to break it. And, and that's okay because you do have a reptilian brain. There are these very strong substances out there, these, you know, these, these processed foods. And, and you're not going to cut out your reptilian brain. We can't do that. We need it to survive. So we're going to have to live with it to a certain extent. You want to recognize it and you can do one of two things at that point. You can dismiss it like neurological junk. I got that from Catherine Hansen. You can dismiss it like an alarm clock, like like it's just neurological junk. Or you could dispute it if you need to. 
And what, what disputing it would look like is, well, my reptilian brain saying I could start tomorrow, but I know from all the research on neuroplasticity that we're, we're either reinforcing or extinguishing our addictions. And so I'm either going to make this pattern stronger or weaker. And therefore, if I indulge today, I'll be making it stronger and it'll be harder to stop tomorrow if I'm, I'm in a hole I have to stop digging. So that would be an example of disputing the, um, the voice of the reptilian brain so that you, um, so you can disempower it. And by drawing these really bright lines and watching your reptilian brain try to get you to cross it, you slowly gain the ability to pause and remember who you are and what kind of person you wanted to be around that particular food. And you'll see that you no longer feel powerless. You no longer feel as if someone was commanding you or had a gun to your head and said, you're going to have those chips or you're going to eat that chocolate. You start to feel more like it's, a, like it's actually possible to make a different choice. And over time, you recognize that since nobody is telling what you, you what to eat and you're creating your own rules, that it's kind of silly to break them. And you start to have a lot more control than you ever did. And that's, that's how I help people to recover. That's the very straightforward way that I help people to recover. So you Sorry set people up um, to have small successive um, successes. So you want people. So people should set up themselves uh, the very early stages of this with goals that are easily achievable and build upon them. Yes, because you want to start collecting evidence of success. Mm-hmm. See, a lot of people walk around saying, "Why can't I stop eating?" And they don't understand that that question itself is programming them for failure. If you walk around saying, why can't I stop eating? You're telling your brain to go collect evidence that you can't stop eating. And if you tell your brain to do that, you're going to find that evidence. And then you're going to believe that you can't stop eating. But if you ask yourself, how can I stop eating? And, or how can I stop overeating? And you have a very simple technique with a very achievable task, then you start to build those small successes and you start to collect evidence of success. And before you know it, you realize that you've got a success identity and you're doing it. Now, so yes, you're right, Kathy. Are all, is, does binge eating, are all binge eaters overweight? Or is this, you know, is binge eating on a daily basis? Is it, can it be, you know, a weekly basis? This is where the classification kind of gets a little murky. All binge eaters are not overweight. Um, for about five years when I was a kid, I was binge eating like crazy and I was not overweight, but I morphed myself into a um, basically exercising, sleeping and pooping machine. And I really was missing out on a lot of what life had to offer. Um, There are people who binge eat and then throw up and they're not overweight. There are people who have a really high metabolism, but are nevertheless really bothered by the constant obsessive thoughts about food and would like to regain their mental freedom. They feel like their life has become all about what the next meal is going to be. So it, it looks like what we're trying to do is break down patterns and get very good habit-forming mechanisms in place. And how long would you say it takes before the tide is turned and people are now moving toward the right way of eating? It depends how determined people are. But I can tell you that for a a determined person, that first rule should sink in over the course of about two to four weeks. And then they usually want to start adding some rules to, you know, manage their volume or portion control and start to lose a little weight. Um, But you can be a very different person. You can be a very different person 100 hours from now. I mean, if, if you're really stuck on sugar or flour and you make a rule which really limits the amount of sugar and flour or ideally, you know, takes it out of your system for, for a hundred hours, you'll feel like a totally different person a hundred hours from now. And anybody who's had the experience of binging on sugar and flour knows the difference between having a good stretch and having a bad stretch. And it's, it's a totally different life. But in terms of how the, the brain and the body adjust your Let's go back to the chocolate bar example. If you stop having a chocolate bar every day, within about, I think the research says, six to eight weeks, your 
tree spud should have doubled in sensitivity. And all of a sudden, even though your reptilian brain is telling you there's not going to be any more pleasurable taste in life and this is the only thing that tastes good, like six to eight weeks from now, you're going to find that an apple tastes sweeter and you can start to distinguish the difference between the various species of apples and it's interesting to you, like, you know, gala apples versus Fiji apples versus um, MD apples, but they're, they've got different mineral compositions and different tastes and you can't discern that now with your with your taste bud de- deadened from the overstimulation. But when you withdraw that overstimulation, you'll find that fruit and vegetables start to be appealing again. In terms of not being bothered by cravings anymore, I find that they would dramatically reduce, I'd say by at least about half within that 68-week period. By about six months, they're down to about 20%, and then a year to a year and a half later, you wonder why you ever craved that thing. Mm-hmm. So, do you, do you find come. that educating people, or is this a piece of your practice, do you educate people about nutrition, or is this not really relevant? Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not a nutritionist or dietitian. Like my degree is in psychology, so I, my philosophy is diet agnostic. Now, that, that having been said, if you're body is nutrition starved, then you're not going to be, a fo- be able to follow any rules. I tell people there's some rules you can't make. I can't make a rule that says I'll never pee again because my body's going to force me otherwise. Similarly, if you over-restrict your calories or over-restrict your nutrition, this is typically what binge eaters do. They're, they're really good dieters too. Mm-hmm. And if you try to lose weight too quickly, you're signaling your brain that you live in an environment of feast and famine. And then the moment that nutrition and calories are available, you're going to want to hoard them. So what I tell people to do is either to see a nutritionist like like you, Kathy, I certainly recommend people do that, or to use one of the online calculators like chronometer.com or or my fitness pal, and just make sure that you're on a path that is giving you a complete um, nutritional array and is also not causing you to lose weight at more than one or two pounds per week. And that's that's the extent of my nutritional advice when I when I work with people. I, I find though, I, that I, those I, applications that you talked about, like My Fitness Pal, they you know when people start writing things down and noting things, there's um, accountability attached to it, and I find that that's very relevant for people trying to overcome things and change things. I'm not sure if you see that as well. I do. We improve what we measure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I do. Yeah. So what about future projects with you? So you've written your one book. Are you expounding upon that? Are you going in different directions? Is there anything coming up in the future, in the near future? I've actually written four books. Okay. Um, the, the follow-up book was called 45 Binge Trigger Busters, and we look at very specific situations. So you know, how do you stop overeating when you're lonely? How do you stop overeating when you're, when you're tired? How do you stop overeating when you just don't care? Um, we looked at the 45 most common situations after having done you know, thousands of sessions with people. And I, you know, I wrote up the best answers that we've come to over the course of the last um, couple of years. When I say we, I have a team of coaches that, that work with me. And there, there is another book, which is my autobiography, which probably won't be that interesting to you unless you really become a fan of the method. And the next book I'm writing is called The End of Nighttime Overeating, and that'll be out in uh, about six weeks. It's a very specific effort to help people that are good all day and then lose it at night. Yeah, that is a big problem. You know, it's funny, um, just as a little aside, I keep thinking about uh, time dating and the fasting that is uh, really prevalent now. And done properly, it's a wonderful application. But there are pitfalls if people aren't educated. And I think, you know, especially toward the nighttime, if people are not eating during the day, the nighttime can become a big issue. So that's a very relevant book at this time. Um, where can we find everything? If you go to neverbingeagain.com, I've got three things I can give you for free. The first is a copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format for free. Just click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonuses. You'll get a copy of the book there. You can also get it in Audible or paperback, but there's a small charge for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have compiled a set of food plan starter templates. 
So I call them starter templates because I want you to take responsibility for them and figure out the nutrition and all that for yourself. But nevertheless, I wanted to show you what a set of rules might look like if you were eating, you know, ketogenic or paleo or, you know, high, high carb or macrobiotic, whatever your philosophy happens to be. I wanted to show you what a set of rules might look like for that. And the last thing is I wanted you to see what it was actually like to put this process into place because I know it's a little weird in the abstract. So I recorded a set of full-length coaching sessions, and that's, it's all free, neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Awesome. And your social media sites, Instagram, uh, your handle is live, what, what is it? Oh, Livingston. You'll okay. find it all at right? neverbingeagain.com. Yeah. Perfect. All the social okay. media there. Yeah, that's great. So on the all the social medias there, do follow. It's it's such a relevant topic um, right now, and I think that you'll find so much. I've I've looked at Dr. Livingston's website. It's chock full of great information. And can people contact you on your website? They can contact me. Click the contact button. They can do that if they want to. Great. And um, I, I still I still read everything there. It goes through support and there's a little bit of filtering, but I, I do eventually read everything. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Glenn, for joining us. Such a relevant topic to talk about and um, an interesting perspective that you take on it. And I think the history that you have personally gone through is really relevant for people. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, dear. It was very nice. Thank you. Next week on the Health Hub, we'll be talking about molds and the disease connection with Dr. Christina Carew. So I hope you can join us for that. It is a live show. And everybody, we will talk to you next week on the Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.